So this morning we're going to be focusing in chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, specifically in verses 12 through 18, but uh, to really understand this passage, I think we need to look at the greater passage it's found in. Uh, so I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 27. So whenever you get there, it reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And then beginning in verse 5, as Jacob read this morning, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice, and I share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way, and share your joy with me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be able to come together to uh, join with one another in song, to uh, come to you in the worship of the reading of your word and that we would be able to sit under your word and the teaching in which you've given us through Paul in the book of Philippians this morning. I ask that as we see what Christ has done in this uh, beautiful Christ hymn that uh, we would see him humiliated and exalted and see an example for us to follow as uh, we strive to become more like Christ day by day, to strive to be sanctified, to be made more like him in thought and in deed. I ask that as we look at this passage, we would uh, heed Paul's call and that we as a body of believers would be unified with one another as we are unified with Christ. And that through this unity, we would be steadfast, able to endure suffering and rejoice always 
and that in all we think and that we do, that we would witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dark world to the glory of God. We thank you for this privilege, and I ask that this would lay uh, heavy on our hearts as we would uh, seek to live uh, these principles that we see this morning. And it's in your son's name that I ask these things. Amen. So, as we begin this morning, turn back to me to, turn back with me to the end of chapter one where I began. Uh, to rightfully understand the passage in which we're going to be looking at this morning, I think we need to see where it fits in its greater passage. So, this large section from verse 27 of chapter one to where I read in verse 18 of chapter 2 is essentially a chiasm. And for those of you that uh, don't know, uh, there's a central theme and then going backwards and forward both, there are truths that line up even though they are phrased differently. So we see in chapter 2 in verses 5 through 11 as uh, Jacob read for us this morning the beautiful Christ hymn. We see Christ at the center. He is the center of our theology and Uh, our doxology. He is the truth that we believe and we are to follow him in how we live. So in that we see the humility and the submission of Christ on full display as he empties himself and in the greatest act of service dies upon the cross for sinners and then is gloriously resurrected and highly exalted to the supreme position of Lord over all and given a name at which every knee shall bow and tongue confess. So whenever we see in the end of that, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was given the name Lord, and we see that he was a Savior and servant given this name as he was in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And from this outflows uh, two exhortations of Paul. So proceeding, we see uh, in the first four verses of chapter 2 that there is a call to be unified to be like Christ by being of the same mind and being humble in union with one another regarding one another is more important and then preceding those in 27 through 30 of chapter 1 that they are called to be steadfast and to rejoice amid suffering that they are again to be unified and strive together for the faith And then so to our passage this morning, as we see in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2 of Philippians, we see the application that Paul gives us regarding these calls. He practically shows us how we are to work out our salvation, how we are to heed the call to be unified, to work, to be made more like Christ, to be unified with one another, and to steadfast and rejoice in life amidst suffering. So we're going to focus on Paul's call to Christian living. So if you take notes, uh, if you think similarly to the way I do, uh, we'll begin with this exhortation, obedience exhorted by Paul in verses 12 and 13. So we see then, so then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see Paul begin by affectionately addressing the Philippian church. These were a people that uh, would be seen as his child in the faith, similar to the relationship we've seen between Paul and Timothy. Uh, Individually, this church really was Paul's child. He planted it in the book of Acts. 
And uh, as he says in the beginning of this book, they have been in partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's planted this church over a decade ago, and it began with the conversion of Lydia and her whole household. They are a church of faithful saints in Christ Jesus, a church that has supported him on his mission even when facing opposition when he was repeatedly imprisoned and beaten near to the point of death at the hand of civil authorities. This is the people whom Paul holds most dear and who shares these feelings in return. They feel this in return, and we see this in the gift of Epaphroditus. If you look towards the end of chapter 2, we get the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was a fellow worker and a fellow soldier who was messenger and minister to Paul's needs. And to be a messenger and a minister to Paul's needs was no small task. As Luke records several times in the New Testament, uh, not only was he a friend to be there mentally for Paul, but he was also there physically to try and nurse him back to health. And we see that this journey from Epaphroditus to bring him a gift was no different than Paul's journey itself. In 2.27, it says that Epaphroditus was sick, and it was a great sickness that brought him to the point of death. And because of the great affection between Paul and the people in Philippi, he says that God's mercy saved him sorrow upon sorrow. This church was loved by Paul and Paul by the church. As Paul's child, this church didn't have the more pronounced issues as we see in Corinth or Galatia, but this relationship is no cause for rest and relaxation. Their faithfulness is no cause to become complacent. And this relationship is the way that Paul gets to speak very directly to the church in Philippi. The church was beginning to have issues, and we see that uh, because of their affectionate understanding between them and Paul, he can be very blunt and move forward with how they are to go about living their faith. So in chapter 4, Paul speaks directly to Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And therefore, we see that Paul's focus is greatly focused on the unity of the people as disunity begins to come. So, for them to have unity for those of us in the body of Christ to live in harmony, we see that Paul calls believers in Philippi to be obedient. So what is obedience in this passage? He says that they are to be obedient not as in his presence only, but now much more in his absence and to work out their salvation. So we see obedience is the working out of our salvation. These ideas are essentially the same. But even further so, what does it mean to work out our salvation? So firstly, we need to see that this is not uh, independent. This is not each one of us individually, and it wasn't any of the Philippians individually. First and foremost, this was how the community of believers conducts themselves in the body. Then by implication, how as individuals they are to conduct themselves. Their obedience, their working out their salvation is the process of being sanctified, of becoming more like Christ. So in Scripture, we see salvation typically referred to in three stages, the first of which is justification. The second is sanctification, which we see today. And then further, we see glorification. So salvation in the New Testament is typically referred to in these three ideas of being saved from the penalty of sin in which they were saved whenever they were converted, whenever 
the Lord ultimately saved them and they were justified. And they now are in the process of being sanctified or saved from the power of their sin. They are being made more and more like Christ through the power of the Spirit day by day. And then they looked forward to a day in which glorification would come and it would save them from the presence of sin entirely. And this is the same hope that we have that uh, on the day in which Christ arises and takes his people with him that we would no longer have the presence of sin within our members. So because of this, the Philippians are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel as we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. They are to handle the discord like that of Euodia and Syntyche not like the world, but those freed from the power of sin. As believers of Christ Jesus, as followers, as disciples, we are to handle these things with grace, with self-control, striving for justice, and not leaving these trivial matters to the state. We as a people are to work through issues and to be unified. And this call to obedience isn't a new idea. We see rather that they are to continue what they have already done and that they're to do more so than they already had. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They've already been obedient, but they need to continue to strive for obedience. They have a history of obedience with Paul's presence, but now they have to be obedient while he is away, in chains, in a very different city. And they are to be more obedient than they had been previously to show that believers are to progress in their Christian living. They are to be marked by a positive progression, by a growth, to strive day by day. This is not a work that's instantaneous, and it requires great effort on part of the believing community. Whenever he calls to work out their salvation, if we look at the definition of work, it says that it requires exertion or strenuous effort. The Christian life is not one of being passive. They're not allowed to be couch potatoes. It is a life which requires one to work hard, not to attain salvation apart from God, but because God in his grace has already given salvation and is transforming his children into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another. But lest we neglect God's work and focus too much on man, we see Paul in verse 13. And he declares that this can be done for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The obedience to which Christians are called is not apart from God. It is not apart from the working of the Lord in our lives, but it is rather an outworking of what he's already done within Christians are to grow into the likeness of Christ more and more each day and to do so with fear and trembling. In holy reverence for the God of our salvation, out of love and respect for what he has done in and for his people, believers are to think and to live, to act in a way that reflects that truth. Believers must live as people whose doxology reflects their theology. Truth in the word must ultimately lead to action from the believer or as James tells us, it is a dead faith. In Romans 6, we see that we are no longer slaves to sin. As believers, we are no longer in bondage. We are no longer under the power of sin. And as those who have been united to Christ in his death will certainly be united in his resurrection, 
we should walk in newness of life, as Ephesians tells us, to put off the old self and to put on the new. So as we look to the reality that God works in us, we see that he works in us in multiple ways. Uh, As D.A. Carson says, God in his grace works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. God does not merely work with us, he works wholly in us. We aren't left to ourselves to do our best or to fight between willing or working for God. He is active and personal in our lives, freeing us from the power of sin by his own power and the spirit in us to will, to desire that which is good. And because of this, we do not just work or act on the outside as he wants us to. We are actually able to desire and do the things which are right and good, ultimately for his good pleasure. And by virtue of our working out what God has worked in, we see that God's love for his people, when done for his pleasure, his pleasure also entails their ultimate good. As believers, specifically looking at the Philippian church, we see that the good pleasure of God and the good for them via God's love is that the dissensions among them would be dissolved. Not only would this progress the mission that we have in the world, but they would also be able to live in harmony. They would be unified to stand amidst suffering. He's working at building the wall to strengthen them to take the brutal battle that is to come. So they're to be unified and to be able to stand amid suffering by being brought together through their humbling themselves and being unified first in Christ and his gospel so that they can be unified with one another. So Paul calls us to obedience. He calls us to be obedient, to work out our salvation, to work what God has already worked in. Uh, But as we see, Paul is not in the business of just speaking truth, but he helps us by expounding the truth. He expounds this obedience for the Philippians. So we see exactly how the Philippians are to live as Christians and work through their current struggles. Looking at the larger passage again, we see Paul is giving very specific application in verses 14 through 16 to what he's already previously said in chapter 1. Paul calls the Philippians in chapter 1 to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that Paul may hear of them standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. They are to be in no way alarmed by their opponents, to believe and suffer for Christ's sake and experience the same conflict which they saw to be in Paul and now here to be in Paul again. So if you would look with me again at chapter 2, verse 14. It says that those in Philippi are to do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ Paul will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So they're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And depending on the translation you have, this may also be listed as complaining, quarreling, arguing, bickering, uh, and the list goes on. And we see multiple examples throughout Scripture of how all these things are tied together. 
in trying to be like Christ in their obedience, they're not to be complainers, and neither are we. A believer, a disciple of Christ, is to continually be without grumbling, arguing, and ultimately the attitude that leads to this, the corrupted will which brings forth these actions, an attitude whose outworkings have brought great judgment in the past. For this is no small grievance to God, this is no petty sin, or as John MacArthur says, it is no mere character flaw that in our humanity can't be helped. It is a matter of being content with what God has done given and continues to do and give each day so if you would flip back with me to the book of exodus real quick beginning in chapter five so as we see in exodus chapter five the first 22 verses show us that israel's labor has increased Essentially, Israel is complaining. In verse 13, the taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. But he said, you are lazy, very lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. So Israel's complaining. Israel is complaining that they can't do the job to which they've been given. And then they go and complain to Moses that talking about the promised land and this great God of theirs, that life has been made harder in Egypt. So now flipping to Exodus 14. Looking at verses 11 and 12, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so again, Israel grumbles to Moses, saying to leave them alone, to quit bothering them, that why did they bring them out here to die? And the list can go on as we look through uh, Exodus and Numbers. They go on complaining over a dozen times the most notable of which most of us know, their complaints for water and food before Moses. That in Exodus 16, God provides the manna, and they are to only take their fill for the day to rest in the provision of the Lord. And then in chapter 17, the rocks to flow with water. And then as they continue, their judgment comes. Miriam is cursed with leprosy in Numbers 12, Pestilence comes upon them in chapter 14. The earth is opened and the enemies are swallowed in chapter 16. And the greatest of calamities, the adults in the wilderness would be kept out of the land they were promised. All because of complaining, this act of grumbling, discontentment in the Lord and what he has done for them. 
So this act, this attitude of pride and discontentment is so heinous to God because ultimately it refuses to acknowledge God as good and to acknowledge God as holy and his rebellion fully turning away from our trust in him. And in so doing, this defiles the witness of the church. It completely ruins the mission. Through these things, the church becomes like the world around them and are no longer set apart. Looking to John 17, disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, believers, are not to be of this world. And it begins this way. We typically see the phrase that we are to be in this world, but not of this world. And we say in this world very begrudgingly. But this is not to be the case. First, Christ says that we are not to be of this world and then prays that his disciples would remain in it. He prays that as the Father sent him, he sends us, he sends his disciples into the world and asks that they be kept from the evil one. David Mathis, uh, talking about this passage, says that we are not given light so that we may flee. We are not to be begrudging or run away from the darkness with the light we have, but we are to use the light so that we may go back for others. The light of salvation which has been given to us is to enable us to traverse the darkness, to live set apart, and to go after those who remain in the darkness, guiding them home. We cannot begrudgingly remain in the world, but must seek to live in the world, fulfilling the purpose for which we have been placed, to seek those lost in darkness as we once were. And as we see back in our passage in Philippians, living in this way is proof of purity or innocence and blamelessness. As communities of Christians live unified, as children of God above reproach, the world on the outside will not be able to make any legitimate claims against them. Among crookedness and perversity, they will appear as lights in the world to offer a straight path to Christ. So for some of you in your Bibles, this smaller passage may actually be titled Lights of the world, or to live as light. We see Paul making a direct illustration from text in the book of Daniel. For those of you that may know the text in Daniel in chapter 12, it is written that the wise shall shine as luminaries. Luminaries, as those heavenly bodies, the stars, and those who lead many to righteousness as stars. We see that those who shine are wise. And looking to Proverbs 9, we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So our salvation, our justification, causes this light to exist, causes the light to be born, and through following the call to live like Christ, to follow Christ as fishers of men, seeking the lost and guiding them to Christ, believers shine ever brighter amid a generation that grows ever darker. As we grow in numbers, as we grow in depth in our salvation, we see that our light continues to shine brighter and brighter. And we look now to a modern world in which we see that uh, there's ever-present darkness around us, but uh, this was not unique to us in our time, but this was also the case in the times in which Paul lived. He was riding chained to guards, having a guard on every limb where Nero reigned, where wickedness was rampant within the empire of the Romans, and he was awaiting a verdict on whether he would live to return to Philippi. 
And so the Philippians also were amid darkness as a colony. They were essentially Roman in Macedonia. They didn't have the taxes. They didn't have the prejudices. They were held in esteem like Romans, like the rest of the world. But Paul did not cease to shine, and he calls the Philippians not to cease as well. His light continued to grow amid persecution to the point that, as chapter 1 tells us, the whole Praetorian Guard, the royal guard, knew the cause of his imprisonment. He had been placed there for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the darker the surroundings, the brighter he shone, and as should all believers with the hope of Christ in them. But as lights seeking those lost in darkness, uh, we need tools. What is the light in our lives? As we see, they are to hold fast the word of life in verse 16 so that in the day of Christ he will have reason to glory that he did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The word is that which would help them progress in the Christian life. And ultimately, this is the word that they would use to witness guiding the lost. The word of life is the light which we have within us. And all this, so Paul, on the day of Christ, may have reason to glory, not having run in vain or toiled in vain. So we see that Paul refers to himself as an athlete that he does not want to have run in vain. His life is a running, a strenuous act of trying to reach the finish line. And then also that he does not want to toil in vain. As most of us are familiar, uh, hot days in tobacco or soybeans or hay or whatever it may be, he also references himself as a farmer. He does not want to have to toil in vain, the hard labor of growing the seeds of disciples in Philippi. He does not want the seeds to wither and the grass to fade. So he encourages the Philippians that their effective ministry would on the day of Christ help prove the effectiveness of his own. And this moves him to thoughts of tremendous joy. So as he expounds the obedience in which they are to live, joy comes in his heart as he thinks to the day of the Lord and We see his obedience, the joy that is within him as obedience exemplified in verses 17 through 18. This seems to further Paul's point from 14 and 16, but it also seems to cap his exhortation. In the chiasm, this would be a, if Christ is the center, the basis of our thought for the exhortation and application, then this really is the capstone. This is sealing the deal using the relationship he has with the Philippians essentially to give the handshake and signify that a deal has been struck, that they would fulfill their calling that he had given them and that they would continue in faithful service to the Lord that he may not have done his work in vain. So as Paul speaks of his joy in seeing Christ and being sure that he had not labored in vain, he also finds joy amidst the suffering, joy in the work that is being done by the Philippians. The apostle can rejoice knowing that if he were to become a martyr, If Nero in this day were to sentence him to death, he would be poured out as a drink offering. And as in the Old Testament offerings, a priest would offer a drink offering only after the animal had been burned as a sweet aroma to raise to heaven. So this, Paul says, he will be poured out. His ministry will be the seal and sweet aroma to the Lord of the Philippians' sacrifice and service. As the Philippians were faithful to work, Paul equates this to them worshiping him. Their faithfulness is equated to an act of showing reverence for and adoration of God. 
It is an act of worship. And when Paul sees that the people in which he's planted in Philippi worship God with their lives, how can he not be moved in his heart but to rejoice? To have joy in the Lord for what God has done for them, what God has done in them, and how that is translated into how they think and live for God. And we see that this isn't a joy that he keeps to himself, rather a joy that he shares with them. Paul sees these things and rejoices and tells them that they should also. The world in which we live, the world in which the Philippians live, finds all manner of ways to rejoice in self, to rejoice in immorality. But as believers are called to humble submission and realizing just how poor and lowly and standing before God, sometimes Christians don't want to rejoice. We don't find it easy to rejoice. We don't feel that we are able to rejoice. But Paul here sees their service. He sees the service of the Philippians, their sacrifice, and intends to encourage them that this is a good work that the Lord is doing in their lives. And whenever you see this, there's reason to rejoice. Yet we may not be perfect. The Philippians certainly weren't perfect. But even without perfection, we are to rejoice in being made more like Christ day by day. We are to rejoice, the Philippians were to rejoice, in how the Lord is working in their lives and using them for the advancement of the gospel around them. But Paul doesn't stop there. He urges that they rejoice specifically in the same way and share their joy with him. They too, as 127 through 30 says, are to suffer for Christ's sake and are to experience the same conflict they see in here and Paul. And because of this, they need to be reminded that as they're united to Christ in his suffering and united with Paul in his sufferings, they too will suffer. And to us in a world that is very dark, we too as disciples will suffer. But looking to the hymn in the preceding verses as Christ was humiliated, then exalted by the Father, so too shall all believers be exalted on the day of Christ to sit at the right hand of Christ. In Christ, his disciples are victorious, and this precious reality is the founding of Paul's great joy and the joy that we as believers also ought to have. So looking specifically at this text, I want to uh, ask a few questions. For those of you that uh, have your bulletin handy, on the back we see, Have you been obedient to the call of Christ to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. For some, the first step in obedience is that to call on the name of the Lord, as Romans tells us, and be saved. For everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then next, for those of us who are justified, those of us who are in the process of sanctification, I want to ask, are you pursuing obedience and growth in Christ-likeness today? Are you being unified with the body of believers? Are you making a strenuous effort to work out your salvation amongst the body in which you've been placed? As Christ, in verses uh, 5 through 11 of chapter 2, humbly lowered himself and regarded others as more important, are you humbly regarding others as more important in your daily lives? Are you living in a way that shows that I need or I want 
or I deserve, or I am owed, or I am due? And does this cost grumbling? Or are you living humbly regarding others as more important, seeking to meet the needs of those around you? And with this, are you seeking to be content with what you've been given? Not grumbling. Are you seeking to be content with your situation or the circumstances in which God has placed you? Paul had guards on each limb and was in prison on house arrest away from the Philippians and this did not stop him from being content and finding joy in the Lord of his salvation. And then lastly, I would ask, are you rejoicing in the Lord amidst your suffering? And with that, are you rejoicing in the Lord even when you're not suffering? And as you live through your daily lives, are you sharing this joy with the body of believers that you're called to be unified with? And if you're suffering, are you receiving their joy? Are you rejoicing with those that have been placed around you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us out of the book of Philippians. Thank you for the body of believers in Philippi that was so dear to Paul. Thank you for the relationship that you gave him that you would enable us to see how Paul exhorts the Philippians to be obedient, that uh, they would not grow complacent, that they, in their faithfulness, would continue to be made more like Christ day by day. Also, thank you that you give us the example of Christ himself. But even though we know that uh, we are not the perfect sinless man of Christ, you give us application through Paul. And even in the text uh, beyond what we looked at today in Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see an aspiring pastor and just a dedicated layman that every walk of life has the ability to work out their salvation and to live amidst persecution unified with the body of believers in which they've been placed, in the circumstances in which we've been placed. This is our source of joy, the hope that your son was humiliated and utterly exalted. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father and given the name Lord and that we are co-heirs with him. We are co-heirs with Jesus and one day we'll sit at his right hand. We are victorious. We are lights amidst a dark and broken and crooked world and we need to live as such. I ask that as we go into this next week and as we continue in our lives that we would heed the call that Paul has given us. I ask that you would help us, that you would give us the power to enable us over sin to be obedient. And I ask these things in the power of your son's name because he's the only one with the power to fulfill these things. Amen.